0: in the society of human beings, your society has problems because uh, it goes with it. The only way to escape those is to escape society altogether. That's really not much of an option at this point. So when people are distressed, the eternal truths have this great quality about them. They just march through time. Unaffected, they're unaltered by whatever issues are going on, whatever people are dealing with or struggling with. What is true remains true. And so things can transpire in a given year, even in a given week, in any given society. But it's it's the timeless things, it's the revealed things. They stay true. And that's what you've got to go back to. So let's do that. Ephesians chapter 2. To the degree that it's legible on that screen, follow right along. Otherwise, you know where else to go. And here's what he says right there, starting with verse 12. Remember that you were at that time. You know what time that was back when he tells them, remember now you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel In himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So this is true when he wrote it. True in all the ages. Does it remain true? Oh, yes. No changes in these truths. We live by these kinds of truths. That's why we teach them. That's why we preach them. That's why we always remind each other all the time. Keep our roots in in the eternal things from day to day to day. And stuff just goes on changing. And not always for the best. But these things don't. Uh, if we had no such truths, if we we didn't have them, then uh, we wouldn't be grounded i mean we wouldn't we wouldn't be planted in anything firm and if that happens someone who lives like that and sadly obviously the world is filled with people who have no place to plant and so what happens then is you're just blown by the prevailing winds or whatever the currents of your daily cultural opinions and events they'll just carry you along you you won't be able to to have a any kind of true north, and it's not you're not, and you don't sail on a on a nice cruise along those currents because those currents aren't smooth. Uh, because societies have the kind of currents that are confusing and tumultuous, so it's it's not a fun ride. If if that's how you go through life, just on those currents, then it's a confusing and dangerous. It's a distressing kind of ride. It's it's a, it's, it's something that causes anxiety. So people live with stress, and they live worried, and they don't sleep well. You don't have peace of mind if you can't be planted in some things that you can really count on. If you can't be built on a rock, your house, what happens to your house? Built on sand, it just can't stay. Because you don't live in a world where the sand just stays undisturbed. Oh, the sand gets stirred up pretty good, and the wind blows pretty hard, and, and the waters have a lot of power to them, and most people are just helpless. And so they don't know what to do. This breeds a constant kind of anxiety. Uh, and, and I think a real desire for a lot of people to try to find a foundation somewhere. People really looking for that, because they want to stop the, the madness. They want to get their bearings, you know, they want to find some kind of a true north. And this, of course, becomes all the more important during those periods, during the sort of the ups and downs of, of, uh, of the lives we live in whatever societies we find ourselves. This becomes most acute when the social fabric gets torn in different ways. So then there have just been lots and lots of people the last several days with a kind of angst, and, then, and and I know some of them, they say, they'll say, you know, I don't, I just don't I just don't know what to think. I just don't know how to, how to believe about all this stuff going on. They feel tossed in different directions. And and while 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 sort of feeling tossed around, they also feel a little bit paralyzed because they, they also have a sort of a fear of you know saying the wrong thing, no matter how well intentioned. So we can rest. Sort of the good news part of this is, you find a kind of rest in ground that ain't shifting. You find a sort of a sort of respite when you get to the fundamental truths. You come back to them. This this is one of many reasons, by the way, why staying connected to the Word is a regular part of the Christian discipline and the Christian life. Because aside from the other reasons, there. Down the list is is almost a therapeutic reason frankly I mean you need it uh, because uh, your mind can just reel with whatever is happening and this isn't unique for us. you know all you got to do is read a little bit of history and the lives of the people who went before us to see that whatever angst you feel uh, people have had it worse. People have gone to bed at night with a lot Bigger and more threatening and more terrifying prospects uh, on their minds. And so right up to this moment, these things revealed so long ago, we should be reminded of them. We, we've got we to stay near them. So that's what I want to do. I want us to be reminded. I want to I go through some things that are so basic that some of, them, some of them are assumed in the background of what we read here in Ephesians. What we see in Ephesians assumes some things. Things that largely we, we're believers, we assume them too. Because we've. There's sort of the tapestry of the understanding of all of the Bible's portrait of r- the real world. So they're not all mentioned in every passage. So they're so basic though. And And listen, don't be afraid when I say, I got ten of these. Are you afraid? See, I just told you not to have anxiety, didn't I? No, no, you're going to just listen fast. It's on you. So I hope you lubricated your mind sufficiently with the coffee so that your microprocessor can work at the speed I need it to. I don't have these on the screen for you either, so that means you got to just remember them. So let me just start at the top with some basic things you can remember today. And the first one is that the image of God is the foundation for how we regard and treat fellow human beings. The image of God is the foundation. People are wondering, how do I, what's the right way forward? You know, there's strife. The image of God is the foundation for how you regard, how you consider, how you look at, how you perceive, and how you treat all fellow human beings. It's the first thing you learned about humanity when you went back to see who are we? Genesis. Who are we? And what does it say in the creation account? In the image of God. That's So it's early. It's the core of the law. The very core and kernel of the law, of the law that was given to the people. Right at the heart of it are those great commandments. Right at the center of all of the law is to love God and to love your neighbor. So the image of God is why you do that, is why that law exists. It's the basis for all human dignity and all human rights. We believe in those things. We have a reason to believe in those things. Those things have a foundation for us. A lot of people, I think most people do believe in them and want to believe in them and innately feel like they should believe in them. The foundation, though, isn't always there as to... How do I connect this in a deeper way? Where is there soil that this is planted in that I, I know is good, rich soil? And for many people, it's not. Part of our calling in the world is to connect the dots for people. To say, you're right to know that intuitively. And now let me share why you've always known it. Why you've always sensed that that's true. It really is true. James 3.9 says that with our tongues we bless God and with them we curse fellow human beings. what's the rest of it? who are made in his image and what the apostle is saying as he chastises all of us is he's given you the reason why you ought not do it. that's that's the basis for his chastisement. Don't do that to people. why not? Because those people are made in God's image. so you do not curse, people made in God's image. He may take it personally, the image of God then. Second thing in our our basic truths we can count on is that people, people now are diverse in numerous ways by God's design and intention. It is by God's design, it is no mistake, it is no accident of some kind of long-term evolutionary process working blindly on factors that had no had no blueprint in mind it is by design that people all over the world are the way they are Paul walked right through Athens and all the philosophically minded guys were sitting around doing what they do now I like philosophically minded guys and I think it sounds like fun to just sit around and do that sort of thing. So, hey, I, I I would enjoy an afternoon in Athens myself. And Paul walks right in there with them, and they want him to speak to them about his peculiar beliefs. They're fascinated by these beliefs he's been preaching. And part of what he tells them is, in just this one verse in Acts 17, he's he's talking to them about the God they sort of believe and sort of perceive, but they just haven't necessarily put a real theology on it and he says to them and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so he's telling the philosophers God did this He meant for there to be all of the various peoples of earth. That's his doing. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 something that he would tell Israel and all the descendants of Abraham over and over again, repeatedly, which was that, quote, Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All is a fairly broad term. There's no way to uh, parse the word to mean anything less than all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Israel saw itself time and again as having this mission. They failed at it repeatedly, but they were supposed to hold up the true and living God for the sake of all the people so that they could see the true and living God, worship the true and living God for the good of all those people, for their ultimate Blessing and happiness, those peoples of the earth who God put there for his own purposes. And of course that's Genesis, you have that in the beginning, but now you can take, you can go all the way now to the end. And in the book of Revelation, where it says there in chapter five, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you? To take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation from the start to the finish you have the emphasis so all of the variations of all humanity across the planet, that's God's doing. He meant for it to be so. The third one is that the diversity of people is minor, though, compared to what makes us the same. There's a rich tapestry of of diversity among the peoples of the earth, but all that is small compared to what makes us the same. Our sameness is a bigger thing. It really is. We've already seen we are all made in the same image. I mean, that's that's just that's just at the start. That by itself would probably that by itself would swamp the list of differences. Right there, that we're all made in the same image. Our nature is all the same. It makes us all the same. People. Here's here's a piece of wisdom that's just so profound. You have to write it down. People are people. Did you get it? People are people, regardless of time, regardless of place in which they live, regardless of all the culture, ethnicity, and certainly race. People are just people. You find them to be the same, especially once you get through the initial uh, fog of the differences. This is why every time in history I am to now, when one people encounters another people, and, in, and, and sometimes in history, you know, they had been separated for all time. It's wild to think that there were times when one, when one group of representatives from one group of people for the very first time encountered the others. and For the very first time. It's wild to, th- to think of it. At the very beginning of that meeting, no doubt, it seemed so foreign. So foreign. They're so different. Their mouth moves and and sounds come out. I have no idea what they're saying. How they dress. Their features. Whatever. All of it. There's a thing called culture shock. Where if I parachute you right right into another place, there's a freak out period. It's too different. But what happens over time? And in every case, what do people come to realize? The longer they're there... They penetrate through all those exterior differences and they get right down to the heart of who they're dealing with. And and it always ends with them basically having the realization that, oh, these are just people. These people are like me. These people are like the people who raised me, like the people back home. People are just people. When you get right down beneath all that stuff, people are people. So we have to remember that. The next truth is this. Race is actually the least significant of the differences among the peoples of the earth. Race is the least significant. It matters the least. It has the least weight. It is, it is of the least consequence in terms of our nature. Despite the fact now that of course this is what our society is most focused on right now. It actually represents the most surface level of traits. Because it basically is nothing more than mere physical attributes. It is mere. And I say mere intentionally. It is nothing more than some physical traits. And you know, race is not really even a category that the Bible cares much about. You, you saw in Revelation, and, and you, see this, you see these same terms time and again. In Revelation, what did you see? You got tribe and tongue and people and nation. I didn't really see anything about race in particular. Those things are big picture terms. I mean, tribe and tongue and people and nation. These are sort of put them all together. It's the whole picture of an entire civilization of people. It's not hung up on a few features they share. Now, this has led some people of note to suggest that even that race is mostly just a construct on our part. Now, wait a minute. Am I, am I saying there aren't you know some notable distinctions among people physically? Of course, there are. But to what degree that's a that's a, those lines or those categories amount to much of anything. Those that you know you know how little that matters compared to something to things like language and ethnicity and culture and especially worldview, the deeper beliefs. Those things matter far, far, far more than some physical features, which are relatively meaningless by comparison. If all you know about a person is that person's physical features, then guess what? You know nothing about that person. Nothing. Nothing that matters. Take, a, Imagine now a little experiment. I don't suggest doing it necessarily, but imagine a little experiment. Imagine three babies born simultaneously. One in Russia, one in Vietnam, and one in Botswana. Now imagine that at birth, they're all switched clockwise. The Russian baby, right from birth, immediately goes to the Vietnamese family in Vietnam. The Vietnamese baby to Botswana, and the the baby in Botswana to Russia. What do you think happens? And they live their lives there, to adulthood. Now suppose you encounter them as adults. What do you suppose you will find? Will the physical features they, that they, you know, that are part of just their appearance, will those have made a difference in how they are? It may have made a difference in how they were treated, depending on that culture and that society, but not how they are. Anyone have any doubt that that uh, that little baby born in Russia is going to speak fluent Vietnamese? And if saturated in that culture, will be a thoroughly Vietnamese individual. And the categories in their mind about life's big questions and how they might worship and and their traditions of how they regard family structure and the treatment of the elders and how you raise kids and what they like to eat and the kind of music that, that pleases their ears and all of this will all be thoroughly Vietnamese. And so it will be for every one of them. Those physical features will have amounted to nothing in particular. So, number five now. One of the most profound things that we do share in common is sin. Yeah, this is the part where the preacher has to talk about sin. This is the most undeniable feature of human nature, I would say. This is the kind of this is this is one of the traits of human nature that I think pretty widely easily perceived. Something that, I don't know, couldn't pretty much everybody easily agree upon this one? How many people are you gonna to find to disagree with that? I mean, you live in the world, don't you? Everyone else sees it. So this is one of the this is one of the most obvious, one of the deepest seated parts of what our nature is now like. Not Not by original creation and intention, but by consequence, we are fallen human beings. Well, you just said that we have the image of God. God's not a sinner. Indeed, so we are. You know, there's a debate. Some people, outsiders, can never figure out whether whether the Christians have a high view of man or a low view. Because they hear us saying that all people are in the image of God. And they hear us saying that you know we, we march for the lives of those not even yet born. We have this understanding. And yet then they turn around and they hear us talking about this corrupted nature that we bear. Because this is not an either or. The, the biblical understanding of who we are, which I think is evident, really, just in even if even those who know nothing of the scripture have a sense, do they not, that there's something you know, sacred about human life they have some some sense of it and yet they also have some sense that there's just some kind of problem people have that they've never met anyone yet who's not a sinner, they just haven't come across anyone yet, doesn't have some kind of Warped element to their nature and subject to these things. So, this is undeniable. Now, that leads to my next one, which is that sin then guarantees that between people, individually, between individual people, and even in groups, there will be, we can count on this, there will be every conceivable form of evil. Because of our nature and because we're relational beings, social beings, put them together. What can I count on? I can count on the fact that between in the relationships of human beings, both as individuals and even corporately, I can count on strife. I can count on contention. I can count on the fact that there will be elements of mistrust. I can count on the fact that some people will abuse other people. I can count on some exploitation. I can probably count on, in some places, absolute enslavement. There's going to be theft. There's going to be murder. You're going to find hatreds and feuds of all sorts. That's how it is. Because, again, I'm not just saying it as a reality without any understanding as to why is it this way. The previous points have laid the groundwork for that point. We know why this is. But we ought not be shocked. Some people, I think are shocked anew with any and every incident in which a person mistreats another person. Now, if the shock is merely that it offends your moral senses, it should. But hopefully the shock is not due to the fact that you somehow had forgotten what we're like in our nature and convinced yourself that such things why, surely would not happen. Such things will always happen. This just ensures it, what we know about us, that these things are going to take place. Does it mean they will take place with the same frequency all the time among all groups of people and to the same degree? And with the same, uh, you know, um, on the scale of one to ten, will they all be tens in terms of how egregious? No, no, because all, all societies and cultures and, and systems of law are not equal, but it will happen. The next thing is that the Bible addresses all of these. All the sins that people commit individually, corporately, have been addressed. The Bible addresses them. There's a point of confusion today, I think, as to how to account for this. How to account for this. You know, the same why questions are in in all people's hearts across all time. The same big why questions. And do you know what one of them will always be? Why are people like this? Why do people do these things? I think they were asking it a thousand years ago. And a lot of people are asking it right now. Because it's a perennial question. But when they ask it, what they're kind of saying is, how do I make sense of this? I mean, how do I account for this? People are morally aware. It's part of our nature. So they they innately see things, and people have an innate desire for wrongs to be made right and for things to be as fair and just as possible. I mean, deep down, people this is an innate thing because we we see what's right and we see what's wrong. There's We have moral eyes to see. They don't see perfectly because they're corrupted, but they still see the basic things by and large overall. So people think... I want wrong stuff to be made right. But it's just hard to know how do I channel that properly. Where Where is a channel for it? And without the roots, you see, and the structure of a Christian theology and a Christian worldview which has laid the foundation for, again, the principles of human rights, for, a, for the notion of a just society. Without that, you get a lot of undirected emotion which will ultimately, at least many times, backfire. It will be will be attended with a lot of foolishness and error, which hurts people more, and compounds problems. There's a principle that I've noticed in the, in the post-Christian society that we're now in. And that is that every momentary or temporary moral crusade at the level of popular culture is either one of two things. Every, every, every sudden moral crusade that strikes up seemingly overnight will either be, it seems to me, A, based on a moral truth that certainly is biblical, that is known by most people, that has been known by people throughout the ages, that has been consistently taught by good Christian teachers and followers of Christ throughout all time, and probably even something people have died for in the past. It's either that kind of thing. So that it's ancient, it's old, it's been around forever. and people Even if someone yesterday kind of just realized it anew. Or it's in another category, which is it's based on only contemporary moral confusion or even logical or scientific confusion. And it's not, therefore, biblical. And it wasn't believed historically by many people, and it's not in accord with truth. Whenever you see a a sudden moral crusade, a sudden moral bandwagon in the culture. I think it's either one of those two. It either predates us by a long time or it just came along recently. So, for example, I think in the first category are things like we, many things we've seen, that, like the fight for a just legal system. That's something new? Read the prophets of Israel. <laughs> Woe to you judges. You take a bribe. You're partial in your judgments. You face the judgment of God who said there shall be no partiality. Or James talking about you. You You treat people different who walk into the church doors. You take this. You have the place of prominence. You sit back there. Wrong. So, in the, so that's one of those things in that first category. When you see that, it's just it's not new. It's, they're just tapping into, into something that is ancient, really. It's been taught for generations. Christians have bled for that cause many times in places. For the dignity of all human beings when they fight the traffickers. Age old, the dignity of people or the movement of the movement of men's abuse of women not new not new very very old tapping into something recognizing from through moral intuition something true very true and the second category would be maybe some other things today there are sometimes crusades to do strange new things with how gender works and or abortion on demand so on as though it's a right given by God. This is a brand new notion. The, the, through the ages that wouldn't have been fought for. You wouldn't you won't find the great philosophers and theologians laying out great moral cases in their treatises for that right. So it's either in one of two categories. So the next one is that having diagnosed these problems, this is my number eight, okay? I'm getting there. Having diagnosed these problems, the Bible reveals the cure. You know that diagnosis and cure go together. Anybody who needs a mechanic knows that, or who is a mechanic, and anybody got a medical problem knows that. If you can't diagnose correctly, your, chance, your, your, your shot at fixing it is very, very, it's a very low percentage you're going to stumble onto how to repair that which you haven't correctly figured out why it's wrong. So diagnosis matters. So through the revealed word, we get the accurate diagnosis. Here is why these problems exist. And the diagnosis matches. Here is here's the medicine. Here is the, here's the right physician who has the right cure. And the Bible reveals this. It's the universal question. How to deal with sin. How to resolve the inner conflict, the inner tension of the guilt people carry. When I look out today at all of the wild stuff that's been going on, I can't help but see, I read between the lines, and I just see so much guilt and shame in the words of people. And they're trying to resolve it. They want to make atonement somehow. There's this nagging sense that, People are wrong. I'm wrong. Everything's wrong. I've done things wrong. How do I fix it? How do I deal with the guilt? How can I get out from under the burden of feeling these feelings? Ephesians 2 makes this clear. God has resolved this in Christ. In Him, people who feel like they're 10,000 miles away from God and unworthy are brought in near. And whatever hostility that exists between them and God... Peace is made. They're at peace with God. God is at peace with them. And you can't put a price on that. You remember now the man who wrote the most famous hymn of all time, a hymn that was referenced in one of our songs. It's like 10,000 variations on it. Amazing grace. Don't ever forget that man. As I know you well know, had once been himself the captain of a slave-trading ship. But he met God. And he who had been at war with God, and at war with the teachings of God, and at war with his fellow man, and at war with the basic fundamental truths about the dignity of man. He had made war on, on so many things. For money, basically. That man met God, so he was transformed And he was personally revolutionized. People want revolutions. But according to the scripture, the fundamental revolution that can't be skipped over, that is required, is the revolution of the self. There is a personal revolution whereby a a sinful person is, is, is individually revolutionized. That can't just be jumped over for the sake of some kind of large-scale cultural rebel. You won't get that. You won't get it. And this is really the next point, which is that alternative solutions to the Bible's answer will ultimately fail. They are doomed to fail. How can they succeed ultimately? Does that mean none of them can ever make any strides? No. A little here, a little there. Some good here, some good there. Because, again, there are basic common sense things. There are there are common moral intuitions. We could fix a little bit here and a little bit there, but n- not in a deep way. Not in a, not in a true way can we have the resolution. Because it's an all it's sort of like if you go to the wrong doctor, you may fix a little bit of something here and there, you know? But you can't get right down to the to the heart of what is really inside. This cancer can't be cured by treating some of the some of the, you know, surface level. Um, or exterior things that, you know, they, this looks wrong. These, these are symptoms. We can fix a few. But the gospel goes down in and excises the cancer. And the heart of stone comes out. And the heart of flesh goes in. That's the real difference. That is, that is what ultimately solves this. That's what resolves it. Alternates can't. You know, you look at the church... And you see anybody, some of you I know have, have traveled to play. you've been to places in the world. You've had that culture shock that I mentioned. I know some of you have. And if you ever have, then one of the things that's that, that's so illuminating when you meet the Christians, when you when you see the believers. I've been to some of these places and it, it is it's a you know, at first it's a it's a shock to the system. I mean, it, there's adjustment to be made, and and as I said, you can you can in the beginning think I can never, I can. There, there's just some kind of foreign element that can never be overcome here, and then they take you in where the where the believers are meeting. You go to the local church, you know, in one of those places, and they're praying. In the maybe you don't understand it, but you get it, and they sing. And someone teaches the word. And and, you know, the hands are shook. And you know what you figure out pretty quick? Ah, we're family. And all that stuff goes away. The church is that place. Why? Because not only does God reconcile us with himself. But you see, in that letter, Paul's talking to some Jews who had it. They had this wrong idea. The wrong idea was all those people out there with the funny languages and the weird customs and they were raised with the oddball religions that are worshiping these other gods and all this custom stuff, they're not like us. We're the covenant people. Ours are the prophets. Ours are the scriptures. Ours is the temple. We worship Yahweh and we're just never going to be able to, you know, I mean, they just too much distance. But as the gospel went out into all those places in the world, all those people, and all those other cities and towns, those non-Jewish people, all the ethnic people, all the Gentiles, what they discovered was that ain't true. And Paul is articulating for them why. He says that wall, that wall is smashed down. They seem like they're way far away from you, but they're not. God has brought them right in. And now here they sit. They sit right next to you. And you, your hands go up and you say, Ah, oh, praise be to Yahweh our God. And guess what? That guy from Phrygia, that dude who's, you know, who, who was from uh, the northern part of uh, the Greek uh, peninsula, that, this person over here, way over in part of Asia Minor, they can sit next to you and they, their hands go up and they praise God too. And there's just no difference because he has broken that down. And any weirdness and any kind of animosity, it's over with. He is making one new man here. That's the solution. The alternates fail. The alternates fail. Well, the government's going to do it. Can't do it. If there are those, and there will always be, who deep down inside of them simply harbor suspicions and hatreds for other people, I cannot pass a law to fix that. I CAN PASS A LAW TO PUNISH THEIR BAD BEHAVIOR, I ALSO COULD USE SOCIAL PRESSURE TO MAYBE GET THEM TO MOUTH WORDS THAT SOUND RIGHT, BUT THEY COULD JUST SAY SO BECAUSE THEY DON'T WANT THE SOCIAL MEDIA MOB TO PILE ON TOP OF THEM, OR THEY DON'T WANT THE FLACK THEIR BUSINESS WILL GET, SO THEY SAY THE RIGHT, SO THEY JUST FOLLOW THE SCRIPT and they make the confession. A secular culture can't stay secular. It finds religious alternatives and it doesn't even know it. There are some today who were not raised in the church and you might say, "Well, they have no they're they're non-religious." I'm not sure they're non-religious. I think some of them are trying to channel the they've got the god-shaped void. They are sticking stuff in it. And they're trying to channel their spiritual need into a, a kind of new form of a religion. Where maybe they find their identity not in Christ but in some other attribute. Even if it's the most shallow. What did I say about race is the shallowest thing about our features? And yet some people will locate their entire the entirety of their identity in it. It can't handle that. It's, it's, it's too flimsy for you to find, to locate your complete... But as an alternative, that's what can happen. And then maybe you can have the original sin of people's mistreatment of other people from the past, and you know that people have mistreated people, and that's, that's the sin nature. So we must absolve that sin. We must join the church, which is whatever group, and then we, we have to try to make confession. I confess. I confess deep down my sins in this regard. Please absolve me. But there's there's no real forgiveness in the false religions. You can't really, they don't even forgive each other, really. They, 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 they don't reconcile. You always have the stain. You can't be washed of it. I remember as a kid, the first time I probably one of those, probably one of those shows like Jerry Springer. Remember those? First time I saw some of these guys that were the white power guys, he'd come on those shows, you know. And Honestly, I thought, was, I thought it was hilarious. You know what I mean? These silly guys with the white cone hat on, you know, talking about white power. And I, you know, I thought it was sort of funny. I was like, <laughs> what? Because look, what's silly about that is we, here we are, we believe in the power of God, the power of the gospel. What is the power of white compared to that? What's that mean? The power of my melanin count. Oh, so much power in that. There's no power in that. It's just nonsense. And I remember thinking, how goofy is this? You can't look. You you cannot find identity in that. That's that's the most shallow thing in the world to find identity in. Again, not even a biblical category to speak of is this. And yet, it's come back around. There's no power there, Why power? Blood There's no power in any of that. There's power in the name, right? There's power in the gospel. There's power in the transformative miracle. And people can be changed. And that's how you get that arm-in-arm brotherhood that people want. People want it. One of the the mayors said the other day, "I I just am thinking of the lyrics of the song Imagine. Which is in some ways an odd secular hymn, harkening back to a previous era, which was not unlike our own. The last, some of you are old enough that you've looked across the last few days and you've you've had uh, flashbacks to 1968. You know, <laughs> kind of looks and sounds like 1960s, and that song is is a hymn from the 1960s, and what it wants in some way, part of what it wants is good. It's the closest thing this guy could grab for, to find something. The problem is, rooted in the song, are are false gods and false worldview. Because it imagines there's no heaven. Brother, imagine there's no heaven, and all hope is now gone. For ultimate final reconciliation. As a matter of fact, I can't find an argument, I can't find a deep-rooted argument to even stand and make against any of the supremacists of any kind. What have I got to say to them? Final point is simply this. God has reconciled us already. Reconciliation of all the peoples, of all the races, of all the ethnicities has been accomplished. Well, I don't see it. I also don't see all of the people confessing Christ. And, and I don't see worldwide salvation of all human beings. But has salvation been accomplished? Yes, it has. The act by which men may be saved is a done deal. Even if not applied. Even if not acted upon yet. Even if not realized in the lives of people. And so it is here. Because reconciliation, the basis for it, has been done. We don't have to do that. Any more than you can go about living your life in such a way with through spiritual disciplines and through holiness of life and through all the things you might do, you cannot, through those things, achieve and accomplish by those things your reconciliation with God. I shall be saved. I shall be put right. I shall be forgiven once once I have reached the mark by what I've done. We know better than that, obviously. This same chapter said famously... A few verses prior, you know, you know the one, right? Back up, back it up. You get those verses that I would I would assume all Christians still know pretty well. For it is by grace that you have been saved, not that of yourselves. So that you can't really brag about having it. (laughs) And it is by grace that God has not just reconciled you to Himself but has achieved the basis for the reconciliation of all human beings so that they can be put right with each other and they can, there can be forgiveness with each other and He can make from them one new man.